have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me of this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up, their par save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through, all, through any of these those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And not all, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and dis disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may hum humble me before you, and that I ha may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before, all, before and all others that I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For, when, for we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, that we may appear to have met the test, but, the, but that you do, not do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write all these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given, for, given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all. Good morning. It's great to be with you. I'm uh, very grateful for this opportunity 
to walk alongside Martin and be able to be a little bit more with you. So I don't know how much he explained, but I study with the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Leuven in Belgium, which is Flemish, and I divide my time here in Switzerland with the Bovres Church in French and a little bit with you as well until June in English. So I'll be managing three languages at the same time, uh, but it should be okay. I'm really thankful for this opportunity also to walk along with Martin. Um, the other day, actually some time ago, before the COVID crisis started, but it seems like the other day because it's just, this time it's kind of a black hole, you know? <laughs> but it's been a little while, but uh, we were walking in the Valais and uh, we came uh, upon this small uh, chapel, and the small chapel, and you know, I love chapels. When I see a chapel in Switzerland, especially in the Valley, I usually like to go in, you know, see if the door is open, door was open, I went in. And in the chapel, there's this big rock encased in a metal box, and there's a picture of an African man painted on the side, and I was like, that's really strange. What is this all about? So, you know, I, I, I started to do a bit of research, uh, and actually, this uh, picture is from uh, Saint-Maurice. You might know Saint-Maurice, the town here in Valais, uh, or Saint-Maurice in, uh, in, in the Graubünden. Um, but Saint-Maurice was actually an African. He came from Thebes in uh, Upper Egypt, and he was the commander of the Theban Legion. You might have heard about this, I don't know. Um, at this time, this is about 286 AD, um, Rome was conscripting soldiers from other countries, occupied territories, and uh, drafting them in the army, but because they didn't want to run the risk that these soldiers would turn against them in their home countries, they usually marched them to the other side of the empire to uh, take care of trouble. And therefore, uh, in 286 AD, the Theban legion out of Egypt was marching over the Grand Saint Bernard down into the Valais to Martigny, to take care of an uprising in Gaul, nowadays France. And uh, when they came down to Martigny, the emperor, actually there was a new emperor, Maximian, and um, Maximian, he started uh, Christian persecution uh, on a larger scale than before. And a common way to find out if uh, people were Christian in the Roman Empire, in the Roman army, was to ask the soldiers to sacrifice to the emperor. So this is what happened in the Valais. Uh, the, the order came that Maurice and the Theban legion had to sacrifice to the emperor. But as it happened, Maurice and the whole Theban legion, according to church history, were Christian. Because they came from Thebes in Egypt, and Thebes in Egypt was the place where you had the, the Desert Fathers. You might have heard about this, Anthony the Great. It was kind of a Christian revival in this area. And um, obviously this revival had influenced also the soldiers. So the soldiers declined to worship the emperor. They didn't want to sacrifice. Rome did not take kindly to people, especially soldiers who did not obey. So the, the emperor told them, had them march to a nearby rock face where the Rhone Valley becomes very narrow, you know, where you drive through the tunnels when you go to Valais, right there. And there he had the whole legion, 6,666 of them, executed. And actually the rock that was in the chapel, apparently, is the rock on which he was beheaded. So it's an interesting story uh, in the history of Switzerland. And it shows us that Rome 
was powerful and Rome was very cruel. Rome was cruel and Rome did not like it when she was disobeyed. The question for me was, Maurice was a Roman general. He knew what was coming. He wasn't naive. Why did he not raise his sword and fight together with his legion? What made a mighty Roman general like Maurice with his entire legion go as lambs to the slaughter? And this is when you look on the side of the church there, there's those drawings where they are all executed. It's, it's really the question, why did he not defend himself? Why was he weak when he could have been strong? He, he was strong. He had a big legion under his command. And I think this question of, of weakness and, and power, this is a bit at the heart of the uh, section of the letter that we have just read. Uh, Rome was all about power, might. They valued power and might over weakness. They were not weak. And actually, the Corinthian church also loved power. And in that sense, you could see they were part of the Roman Empire. The question is, is it really this type of power that matters? Was Maurice really weak? Or was he, or was he powerful in another way? Paul tries to uh, convince the Corinthians here that actually life is not all about power. So let's look briefly at the passage. And it's not... Um, the easiest passage, um, but I want to focus briefly on the verses um, 3 and 4, and I will just read them for you again. Um, it says, Since you are seeking proof of Christ who speaks in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we are also weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. And this is, if I'm right, a New American Standard. The translations are all, not all the same, and it's, it, it shows that not all the uh, commentators and interpreters are, have the same opinion on this verse. It's quite interesting. Um, we cannot go through the whole passage, but I just want to look at three aspects of this passage. Uh, so it is uh, the proof the Corinthians are looking for. So they are looking for some proof. And then Paul, he gives them a first proof, and then he gives them also a second proof. So I'll just don't look at those three things. So what is the proof that the Corinthians are looking for? Um, well, it seems that the Corinthian church was just founded by Paul eh, on his first missionary journey. Um, they had uh, received some other preachers. And Paul calls them super apostles, which is a bit ironic. Uh, I think he is making fun of them a little bit. Um, we don't know who these super apostles were. Um, some say they, are, they were Gnostics, Judaizers, like in, 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 with the Galatians, Greek magicians. Um, based on the information we have from Paul, it's quite possible that they, they were what we call pneumatics or spirit people. They were Jewish preachers who used a high rhetoric and powerful manifestations, or they boasted of powerful manifestations at least, such as visions, miracles, ecstatic trances during their preaching. And the Corinthians, they loved this because they loved power. And they accused Paul of being a weak preacher, possibly under the influence of these super apostles. They might have said, look at Paul, you know, this guy, come on, look at him, he's a weak man. 
The Corinthians thought that when Paul was present, he had a weak demeanor. We see this in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, uh, a little bit earlier in the letter. He says, they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. In other words, Paul had no presence. You know, these days we, we love this word, presence. But Paul had no presence, no flamboyant speeches, no miraculous powers, no trances, no visions. I don't know, but apparently for the Corinthians, the show was lacking with Paul. And on top of that, Paul did not even want their financial support. There was no massive fundraising campaign for Paul Ministries. Instead, Paul engaged in lowly physical labor to support himself. All this made the Corinthians doubt. Was Paul really an apostle of Christ? Was he speaking for, for Christ? So they wanted proof. So what, why, why were the Corinthians so impressed with power? Well, I said it already a little bit, they were in Rome. Actually, the history of Corinth is, is relatively interesting. So the old Corinth in 145 before Christ was actually sacked um, by Rome and Rome slaughtered all the men, sold all the women and children in slavery, burned all the buildings, torn down the walls and the place was, uh, lay fellow for 100 years. 100 years, there was no Corinth. Only in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded the city in the same place, and he did this for pragmatic reasons. First, Corinth was a very uh, unique geographical place. If you've been there, you know why. It's you know the north-south trade and the east-west trade. It's right there, the Corinthian uh, channel, which used to not be there, but they had to transport a lot of goods over the road. It was a very key, uh, key place in the Mediterranean for trade. But secondly, and probably more interesting for us, Rome was overpopulated at the time, and there was a lot of popular discontent. So they needed to get rid of some of the troublesome elements and send them elsewhere. So uh, Caesar, he decided to found Corinth and bring all the problem people from Rome over there and gave them a piece of land there. So these were ex-convicts, veterans, freed slaves. One might say Corinth was like the Australia of Rome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> ex-convict colony, prisoners of Her Majesty down there. Um, uh, we can imagine that the Greeks were not very happy with it, and indeed, uh, this is what one of the, the Greek ambassadors at the time said. He said that Corinth was a great cal calamity to Greece, a crowd of scoundrelly slaves. The Corinthians were not sophisticated Greek philosophers. They were brutish Latin-speaking ex-soldiers, ex-slaves. At the time, Latin was like the language of you know, the lower people. The Greeks didn't like the Latin speakers that much. And, and we can see this that, uh, in the fact that gladiatorial games, very popular in Corinth and not popular among the Greeks. So this was really a, a Roman thing to do. But because of its unique location, Corinth grew very fast. And Paul came around 100 years later, and it was by then already again the largest city in the region. A type of mini Rome, about 100,000 people prosperous trading city, and a lot of these descendants of the slaves and the convicts had become nouveau riche. So it was like a, a class of nouveau riche reveling in their newfound status and power. They loved it, you know? you know, their grandfather was poor, but here they were, now finally they were something. And this demographic was also reflected in the Corinthian church. It was full of 
nouveau riche. You know, people were like, look at me, finally I have a tie here. Uh, you know, and not like the working class of my, of my grandparents. So they were upwardly mobile people in Corinth, not impressed with Paul's weak demeanor at all. And uh, uh, especially, of course, compared with this so-called super apostle. So they needed some evidence, some document we see in verse 3, evidence or proof. Proof of what? That Christ was speaking in Paul. It has the word epsilon, uh, uh, in, but this is not necessarily that Paul was directly communicating with Christ. The, per, the question was more, did he speak with the authority of Christ? Did Paul's words and actions actually represent Christ? Now, we don't have a copy of the letter or the communication of the Corinthians to Paul. It would have been nice. But we might make an educated guess as to what they said. They might have said, we demand proof, Paul, uh, that Christ, who works powerful, powerfully among us, is using you as a spokesman. So the Corinthians doubted whether Paul was really an apostle of Christ or whether he was a fake apostle, a con man, a fraud. And what was the proof they were looking for? Well, power, powerful speech, manifestations, high-minded rhetoric, miracles, visions, new revelations. If Paul's apostleship was to be recognized, he better come up with some of these signs of power, dunamis. And if you've been around a little bit in the evangelical world as I have, you know that this word dunamis is still very, very popular. <laughs> a lot of speakers speak about this, dunamis, power, the power of God. You know, the word that is at the root of dynamite that can explode things. This power, we need it. So this is what the Corinthians were looking for. So how does Paul respond? Well, Paul, first of all, doesn't necessarily mind that they're examining his ministry. As you remember, the Bereans also examined Paul's ministry. They were commended for it by Luke. Rather, Paul's issue is that the criteria the Corinthians are using uh, is wrong. The criteria of speaking for Christ, that, 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 that should be powerful speech, manifestations, that that is the deciding factor, Paul uh, does not agree. Actually, he believes this is a great misunderstanding. He does not hesitate to call it demonic. It's quite strong, but in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, he actually says it's like demonic, speech of the devil. So uh, it's, it's important to realize that Paul does not deny uh, spiritual demonstrations of power. Huh? We, elsewhere, he, he stresses his own mystical, miraculous experiences. But these are not to be taken as trademarks of the work of the Spirit of Christ. Rather, this trademark is power through weakness. For the Corinthians, the trademark of the work of Christ is to do great acts of power. But Paul explains that it is the opposite. Christ took on weakness, asthenia, and this does not just point to the fact that Christ was frail, like a real human being of flesh, although it does also mean that, but it also points to the fact that he consciously lived his life as a servant, refusing to punish those who opposed him, even those who nailed him to the cross. Jesus stood face to face with the cruelest empire in the world, and yet he did not defend himself. He was crucified in weakness, 
Not because he was overwhelmed by Rome or by satanic forces, but because he chose a shameful, humiliating, lowly cross. And we can see when we read through Mark, for example, which we're going to do, uh, that Mark was actually a little bit embarrassed about this whole cross story. So he uses various literary devices to prepare the reader, saying, well, this cross, you know, it's going to come, but it's a little shameful. Jesus chose this consciously in obedience to the Father as a means to be exalted. This true power expressed in weakness is the proof of apostleship for Paul. In suffering, Paul is merely following in Jesus' footsteps. This is the first proof that Paul gives the Corinthians, power through weakness. But Christ did not remain on the cross. Huh? This is also what he says. Uh, he, he was raised to life again by God's power. And if the Corinthians would not accept the weakness as proof of Paul's apostleship, Paul would give them another proof. God's power will be manifested through, to them through Paul, but not in the way they expect. Uh, when we see this in the word uh, because, or epai in Greek, which points to the phrase at, at the end of uh, verse 2, uh, which says, uh, he will not spare, or I will not uh, hold back. I will not be lenient, some translations said. So Paul implies that if his visit, if at his next visit, which is coming, if there is still unrepented sin, the Corinthians will receive a show of power, but not the one they were looking for. And there's a bit of irony here. And if you just go maybe to the next one, there's irony because there's that, uh, that um, sentence uh, that says, uh, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful in you. Um, we, we, rem we might remember what I said, the, the Corinthians might have said, we demand proof that Christ, who works powerfully among us, is using you as his spokesman. Well, says Paul, yes, Christ is powerful among you. He is not weak, but strong among you, but not in the way you think. Not as the wonder worker, not as the miracle man, the powerful spiritual force, but as the judge. So it's a little bit, he turns his, their words around against them. And then in verse 1, uh, Paul mentions two or three witnesses for any sin. We don't, have Luke, we, we don't have the time to look what he means by that at the moment. It might be his two or three visits. But it is a reference to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, of course, there's Moses. Moses is also a man of authority and also somebody who was criticized, questioned by the people he led. The people of Israel were also constantly falling into sin. Corinthians are like old Israel, critical of Paul, liable to sin. As Israel, they are called to repent. But if they do not, they will feel the rod of God's discipline, as Israel did. The weakness of the cross is the proof for Paul's ministry. But if the Corinthians force his hand, he will not hesitate to discipline them with the power granted by God. So this word powerful, it has this sense of foreboding. It's a bit ominous, a bit painful. It, he, was a bit, he was warning the Corinthians, you need to get your life in order. The Christ of the cross is now the resurrected Christ. He must be obeyed. So how will the Corinthians respond to this? Um, will they repent? 
So Paul can come as the weak apostle in weakness, not punishing anyone, which he says he obviously wants, or will they harden their heart, leading Paul to come in power, punishing them, maybe consigning them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Paul's preference is obviously the first. He wants them to repent so he can come in weakness, but he will not hold back, as he says in verse 2, in case they do not repent. Unfortunately, we don't know how the Corinthians responded. We don't have any return letter or follow-up letter anymore. And we know from Acts 20 that Paul did visit, but Luke doesn't tell us anymore what happened. Uh, There are, however, a few principles I think we can learn uh, from this. I think, first of all, we should not be so impressed with power. I don't think the Corinthians are really different from us. I mean, our society, how much premium does it put on status and power? You know, aren't we impressed by the fancy car or the villa at the lake or the private jet? What about the million followers on Instagram or the blue check on, on Twitter? Uh, don't we like to indulge in a little name dropping once in a while? You know, I know this famous politician, well-known businessman. I, I don't think we are much different. Our society is quite similar. Power, status, influence, is everything. And I think we should stop being so impressed by this. And certainly power should not be a criterion for Christian ministry. The Corinthians sought proof for the authenticity of Paul's ministry, and seeking proof is not wrong. But if it's about power, if we think it's about who speaks the loudest, who is the biggest showman, who gives the largest demonstration of power, um, and we think that is the one who speaks for Christ, then That's not right. Sometimes the word of Christ comes through one who speaks very softly, very quietly. So the point here is that the word of Christ should not be judged by the form in which it comes, but rather by the content. It might come with powerful manifestations. It might not. There might be lots of demonstrations of power, but no word of Christ. This is very well possible. A second principle is that we should not separate the powerful resurrected Christ from the crucified Christ. Most likely, the super apostles were not necessarily very heretic preachers. They might have agreed a lot with Paul in many ways. And Paul himself says that the Spirit can work in extraordinary ways through powerful manifestations, through miracles, through visions, etc., Paul even experienced them in his own life. The problem is that these teachers had, in their preaching, completely disconnected the spirit of the powerful resurrected Christ from the spirit of the crucified Christ. It was all power, no cross, all weakness, uh, all strength, no weakness. And if you go to the next one, in, all, in other words, the, the, the theology of the super apostles was entirely theo, a theology of glory and no theology of the cross. If we exclusively focus on the gospel of power, which is emphasis on oppressive speech, powerful manifestation, and, but we abandon the gospel of the crucified Christ, which is with its emphasis on weakness and humility, we end up with what Paul calls another gospel. There will be glory in the Christian life, but it goes through the cross, through weakness and through suffering. 
And finally, what we can learn here is that Christ is a present reality for Paul. Paul emphasizes that Christ is speaking in him and through him. For Paul, Christ is not some historical Jesus from the past. For Paul, Christ is right there, speaking through him, a reality in that very moment. And I think we can learn from this. There's this German theologian, if you go to the next slide, he says, Paul is not so much the great Christologos as the great Christophorus, not so much the great thinker in Christology as the great bearer of Christ. And Christologos is from the verb logizomai, which is to know or to remember. Uh, Phorus is from phoreo, to carry. So we are, Paul was a carrier of Christ. We should be like Paul, to carry Christ, not just to know things about Christ, to keep Christ in mind, but to carry Christ with us everywhere we go. He is a reality in our lives today. So those are just three principles. So if we go back to our intro, we can say that Samaris would not have been able to imagine it, but within 50 years of his death, Christianity would be the primary religion of the Roman Empire. The testimony of Maris and the Theban Legion had a major impact on the Christianization of Europe. There is churches in his name everywhere. Even the patron saints of Zurich, Felix and Regula, were members of the Theban Legion. At the place where Maris was executed, a monastery was built, and the monastery is still here today. You can visit it. And since 522, a laus perennis, or a continuous praise and worship cycle, was held for almost 500 years. And still, when I visited, there were still Gregorian chants sung twice a day in the chapel. Maurice was weak, and yet we still speak of him today, and he might have a better understanding of this power through weakness than the Corinthians. In fact, we see this pattern again and again in church history. We might think of Francis and Claire of Assisi. We might think of Luther standing alone in Worms. We might think of the Moravian missionaries in Hernut, or more recently, Martin Luther King with the civil disobedience. All men and women standing in the Pauline tradition of power through weakness. Because this is the way of the gospel. Weakness overcomes power. Paul's ministry is patterned after the model of Christ, the suffering servant. As Jesus is crucified in weakness, so Paul is also weak. And out of this weakness, Paul calls the Corinthians to repent. I believe Paul's words were not just for the Corinthians, they are for us today. Paul is not anymore among us. But Jesus is, and in his suffering, in his crucified weakness, he confronts us and he calls out to us to repent like the Corinthians were to repent, to take up our cross and to follow him. As Paul is eager to visit the Corinthians in his third visit, so Jesus is eager to visit us. And just like Paul, he'd rather celebrate with us at the eschatological supper of the Lamb rather than be severe in his authority with us. Like Paul was saying to the Corinthians, let us listen to Paul's appeal. Because Jesus, he was weak like us, taking on human flesh, but he was also weak for us when he was crucified. But now he lives 
by God's power. And when we turn to him in our weakness, he will be powerful in us. He will change us and our world from the inside out until that final day when by his power, he will raise us all from the dead. And then Paul says, the God of love and peace will be with us. Amen.